Hello, everybody. Today is September 12th, and uh, that's a Thursday, and that means it's time for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Podcast. And today uh, is a special day because we're, it is the day of our annual symposium. Symposium today was on the topic of oscillations and Parkinson's disease, and we have a panel of experts on Parkinson's disease and on neurophysiology of Parkinson's disease, and I'm about to introduce them to you now. So one of them, uh, I'll go around the room this way, Rob Turner, who is a professor at University of Pittsburgh, Judith Walters, who's at the National Institutes for uh, uh, Stroke and Neurological Neurological Disorders and Stroke, Uh, (laughs) and uh, Jared Vitek, who is uh, Chair of Neurology at the University of Minnesota, and uh, Mark uh, Bevan, who is at Northwestern University, Professor of Physiology. Uh, so, I think it's some voice recognition. Uh, yeah. Rob, uh, say, right. okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So, That's so good. this is Rob. <laughs> Hi, Judy. Great. Say hi. Uh, this is Judy. I'm delighted to be here. And this is Jerry Vitek. This is Mark Bevan. I'm also very happy to be here. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. In lieu of Salma Karashi, you are much beloved but missing host today. So, uh, on the topic of oscillations and maybe oscillations and basal ganglia pathophysiology is kind of too confining of a description of what we talked about today. But um, it it appears that the loss of dopamine is not directly responsible for the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. But rather, the loss of dopamine causes the basal ganglia neurons that are not dead to start doing the wrong thing. Uh, and you can correct me about that, but let me just finish before you correct me on that. And then, the, but then the wrong thing, which is causing the symptoms, is not easily identified. Part of the reason is because we don't know the language of the neurons, and so we don't know what they're saying. And so when they start saying something different, we don't know whether they're saying something better, saying something worse, or saying something that's equivalent, but is just in a slightly different language. So. Uh, how do we recognize a pathological brain pattern that's responsible for the symptoms of a disease? The, a brain pattern that's just a little different and that has nothing to do with the disease. A brain pattern that's actually trying to get better, even trying to fix the disease, but failing. So, uh, so I, I, I beg to differ with you that it's not just a little. Uh, you know, if you look at some of these patterns in the, the Parkinsonian uh, condition, they are s- dramatically different from what's seen normally. The 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 rhythmic bursting activity is that that's it's very very different from what you would see normally. And so, uh, and maybe part of the problem is in in uh, the problem in teasing out what what exactly is the real problem that's causing the symptoms is not because it's subtle. It's because there's too big an effect and too many different effects to, to decide which one's the important one. Could you summarize the many different I'll, effects? I'll that we name have. some, but okay. I, I think that we have uh, the other experts here. But in, um, 
So changes in firing rate do occur by the spiking rate of, of individual neurons does does appear. It um, it's just kind of in, inconsistent across studies is what we've seen today, and uh, uh, the activity of individual neurons tends to become very bursty and irregular, so that the action potentials are clustered together and in time they they occur in bursts. Um, and uh, and then what we talked about the most is is rhythmic um, spiking, so that there's a rhythmic modulation in the firing rate of neurons, and that tends to be synchronized between neurons, um, both neurons within a nucleus and also between nuclei. And um, those are the top um, candidates or uh, prime suspects, but there are additional. Um, a phase amplitude coupling. Jerry, yeah. Jerry talked yeah. about that. And we talked about receptive fields, you know, <clears throat> neurons oh, that usually respond right. to a like a single joint in one direction. Now respond to multiple joints, multiple directions. Mm -hmm. uh, they respond to multiple limbs, not just the contralateral limb, but multiple limbs. And I think that's been really under discussed. Yeah. Is what I would say because that's got to be really disruptive to signal processing and how how information might be transferred from one area to another. It's completely garbled, uh, in addition to the oscillations. So uh, uh, maybe I would expect then the symptoms to have some, peri to be periodic movements, like, of course, tremor is something like that, um, or to be, have garbled movements. <laughs> but yeah. uh, actually, n no movements or less movements seem surprising to me for changes in pattern like the kind that you just described. I mean, the paucity movement, the fact yeah, how do we that... Th yeah. How do we think that all that like, crazy activity, that's just wrong activity, causes paucity of movement? Yeah, so why is it that there's a poverty movement? Why don't people blink? Why don't they have expressions on their face? Mm -hmm. Why don't they have spontaneous <clears> movements? <throat> why don't they adjust uh, you know, when they're sitting in a chair? But they don't. They sit. and they don't, There's just not a lot of internally generated spontaneous movement, which is a little bit different from what we've been talking about when you think about oscillations. I mean, what do oscillations do that prevent those kinds of spontaneous movements? What do they do in our brains? And the oscillations don't, I mean, the one thing that, that we would naively expect if you saw brain oscillations is, oh, maybe that's what's responsible for tremor, but, but it's not. I mean, the oscillations we're talking about aren't very well correlated with tremor and... Well, the lower frequency ones are, right? The oscillations at 4 to 6 hertz are probably pretty tightly correlated. Because you can be recording in an operating room and get a cell, STN or GPI cell, and you'll find rhythmic bursting that fits with the with the tremor. It's just the going patient, right with the tremor. Yep, goes with the tremor, and the patient can open and close their hand. The tremor goes away. The oscillations stop. As the tremor comes back, the oscillations return. So those are, those are pretty tightly correlated to the tremor, I think. But what causes those oscillations is the other is the other question. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But during during normal movement, one idea is that the oscillations. The oscillations are also seen in, in normal, healthy people. And to move, you need to suppress the oscillations transiently. That's common. So maybe in Parkinson's disease, that oscillation is just persistent and less easy to suppress. And that's why you can't initiate movement. Yeah, it's interesting you look at that because it's the argument that these certain frequency bands yeah. response for certain things, lower frequency bands for suppressing movement, kind of keeping the status quo, yeah. higher frequency bands being prokinetic, yeah. supporting movement, right? And that balance, maybe that balance is tipped 
and you don't have a chance to, uh, you've got to turn some off at mm -hmm. a certain time, turn others on at another time. And the arguments that a lot of people make nowadays are you can't regulate the temporal profile of those oscillations. You can't stop them. That would be yeah. satisfying from the desire of finding something simple. Like if there's, a, if there's an oscillation that we normally generate in our basal ganglia when we shouldn't be moving, and then that oscillation just gets released uh, willy-nilly, then we just stop moving. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that seems yeah. maybe overly simplistic. Yeah, the, somebody like to correct that? And like, the, the, <laughs> the, the palatotomy story just still, still. I just always get hung up on this, this, the issue of palatotomy and and it be, uh, you know, disconnecting the basal ganglia motor circuit. Basically, what we're talking about here is not a subtle thing. It's a large lesion that disconnects the basal ganglia motor circuit from the rest of the motor control system. And that is therapeutic for Parkinson's. Yeah. And so it, I, I get hung up on that every time when we start talking about the possibility that, oh, what, what's, the reason why we see these symptoms is because there's some impaired function of the, the normal function of the basal ganglia. That normally the basal ganglia is, is you know, stopping an oscillation that allows movement or, is, or, you know, or that it's helping select movements or mm -hmm. doing something like that. It, it, it just doesn't fit with the, what we see in power. That's a good point. You, yeah. you, you really, uh, it's true. And you start thinking, well, if you can't get out of the basal ganglia by that route through the GPI anymore, are you facilitating information getting from the cortex to the spinal cord and so mm -hmm. forth um, through some other route or just are you just taking the basal ganglia offline it's 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 really very uh, I, I don't know how else you get out of the basal ganglia substantia nigra through, so yeah. uh, how, how about the circuit I, sorry there's a different functional circuit isn't it but it's largely in, uh, the part that projects to the to right. the extrapyramidal motor system, right? The mm -hmm. GPI is largely going to the thalamus. The substantia nigra is going to all of these brainstem reticular yeah. formation it's cell groups. Well, but GPI projects downstream as well. I mean, it hits PPN yeah. and, yeah. and those locomotor centers. And when, I, when you think about this, when you, I mean, that's a really good point, Rob. It, it does make you wonder, but does the pathological state really tell us what, it, what the basal ganglia do? Yeah. And it reminds me of an appendix. We don't even think about our appendix. They just sit there and do nothing. All of a sudden, one gets inflamed, and that's a problem. So maybe just a basal ganglia starting to act up doesn't tell you that that's the normal function, but they disrupt normal function. Yeah. Why, yeah. why in a clinical setting does the substantia nigra, pars reticulata, get less attention? That's a good question. I mean, they used to be, I mean, I remember being a little long tail, didn't they used to be joined together? Like a whale has, yes. it's, uh, it's one. <laughs> and as we, in phylogeny, things change and they separated. Yeah, know. he tells that story. Actually, yeah. I don't think that's that quite true? right, though. And and even embryological origin. I mean, in that case, they should have the same embryological origin. And uh, it's not clear that. I mean, that it seems like substantia nigra is coming from mesencephalic mm -hmm. cells, and diencephalic cells are making yeah. the GP. So, it's um, it's they're probably not twins divided at 
birth, at birth. Quite, quite like that. <laughs> just, yeah. just going back to Rob's point, though, I mean, if you imagine that the basal ganglia, the dopamine-depleted basal ganglia, become more sensitive to cortical oscillation and then feed back that oscillation to the cortex, and to move, the cortex needs to suppress that oscillation and go to a higher frequency. That's why, presumably, lesioning the output of the basal ganglia could be helpful. I, don't, I agree with you. I don't mm. think that tells you normally what the basal ganglia do. I mean, we argue about that for, for decades. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the idea that the basal ganglia respond to a cortical message and in a positive or negative way, I think, is, is a good idea. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think no, it's no just doubt. a... Bad feedback is is the problem, mm -hmm. but I also think you know this idea that maybe the substantia nigra, the output neurons there seem to have more. You know, when you go back through motor thalamus to cortex, that seems to be very complicated, very fine movements that could control. Whereas the movements downstream through substantia nigra seem to be more important for, you know. Um, mechanical ambulation or eye movements and mm -hmm. things like that, sort of much more basic primitive movements. But, I know that you wouldn't want to try to do a lesion in substantia nigra because of the danger of damaging what dopamine cells you have left. It would not be, would not probably Which is be probably wise. one reason why. Yeah. But, but there are anecdotal stories. Would you guys agree with this? idea that deep brain stimulation in the substantia nigra is not a good idea because you can sometimes get depression and... and mm -hmm. Actually, <coughs> mixed, I think, because there's been some story, studies, yes, there have been some, saying that if you get down in the nigra, you can get depression. And by just moving a contact up, getting out of nigra, you, you don't have depression, you get motor improvement. However, other people have looked at gait and balance and gait, freezing of gait, with stimulating in the substantia nigra at low frequencies, which might relate oh. more to what you're talking about, mm -hmm. Charlie. What are that? What were the outcomes of those? Well, I mean, this is some really preliminary studies that people have reported on. I think it was uh, Harrison Walker had given uh, talked about this a little bit, Mark, and uh, they did low frequency stim and the nigra, and they they the early preliminary reports where they thought that they had improvement freezing a gate. Others, however, have also reported this by just decreasing the frequency of stim in the subthalamic nucleus because. Indeed, what you're doing with activating GPI uh, is that GPI is inhibitory to PPN, right, locomotor center, and you'd argue that you would make gait worse. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag, I think. But uh, yeah, but there have been early reports about nigral stem. I think we don't, we definitely don't know enough about basal ganglia outputs to the brain stem and the midbrain. Um, I mean, so for example, the subthalamic nucleus, there's a whole new population of cells that only go to this mesencephalic locomotor region that's been discovered. I actually knew that it's been recently discovered. Yeah, yeah. True. Recently They're not brand new. But that's a major thing. So if you stimulate those cells, then you actually promote ambulation. So that's really Well, that's interesting because that's your lumper nose splitter, right, for PPN. Because they'll break it up into the locomotor regions, like the, the glutamatergic versus the cholinergic portions. Of yeah, the yeah, end, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I think, and I think that whole region—it's not the mesencephalic locomotor region—is just one tiny part of it. And there's a there's a little circuit for all sorts of different types of very basic movements down there, and we don't know how it's connected. But the one thing about the substantia nigra. Um, 
that we got onto was, I mean, I remember papers from the DeLong group showing, you know, really minimal changes in, in nigral output activity in, 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 in PD models, Parkinson's disease yeah. models. Mm-hmm. That's right. So uh, think, mm-hmm. If you're looking at rate, perhaps. Yeah, I don't... The, there, and that's true in animal models as well. Yeah. But... I don't think that means there's not a change. I wonder if people look at that. I think we have to be careful to distinguish between rodents, SNR, and primate. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Because the the anatomy is quite different. Well, because the primate has a GPI. Yeah. And the antipeduncular said to be the the rodent equivalent of the GPI is is really, it's, it's not. Right, it's quite small, yeah. and a large fraction of those neurons are the special habenular projecting neurons, and so it's it's not equivalent to the to the primate GPI. Yeah, yeah that's an right. important point. I think. Right, mm-hmm. you're right. And and so when we're talking about SNR, uh, yes, be, be sure to because the the dorsal lateral SNR really is very uh, related to skeletal motor function, right, in, in the rodent. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, and 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 so, <clears throat> yeah, and that's in, not true. And it's, it's not, not in the human, humans. Are, it's right. more. It's, not in it's the more primate. eye movement. And so, so there's um, Thomas Wickman did this nice study where he he looked at for um, arm related activity in the SNR and found essentially none, very very little compared to what you see in the GPI. In the GPI. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So that means somehow that more of the movements in rodents, more of some of what GPI did is somehow ended up in SNR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still a little GPI there, and the cells, and there are cells that project to the thalamus, and presumably they're still doing a piece of what the GPI does. Mm-hmm. But can't it? Can't we define the circuit by its connectivity? So look at you know the corticostriatal, the dorsolateral striatum is motor. In the rodent, right, uh-huh. and is skeletal motor, and then where does the dorsolateral striatum project to, right? Direct pathway neurons. They, they go. They go to the entopeduncular nucleus, yeah. and also exclusively. Um, or no, no, no. They go to both, and also dorsolateral subsentinigra. Yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> and that doesn't happen in in the primate. If you look at the at the putamen, the the posterior lateral putamen, it goes just to the GBI. Yeah. 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 Not to SNR. That's a good point. Phylogeny. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, yeah, so how does that work? Even though they are em- embryologically separate um, origins for, for GPI and SNR, SNR ends up in the rodent doing something kind of like GPI in the primate. Well, I, I wonder if there's not going to be more insight into that issue soon. I mean, I, there's a lot of work. I think, going on examining genetic markers in different subsets of SNPR neurons. And I can imagine if that expands to include the antipeduncular nucleus. Sometimes then, our view of embryological origin of cell groups changes. Yes. And that one has always seemed a little bit suspect. Mm. It wasn't studied in great depth. <clears throat> so but there are groups, I think, that are looking to, at that pretty closely yeah. these days. Are there? Yeah. Good. A wise thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, it always seems the closer and the more you look at 
subdiv- it's subdividing <laughs> neuronal subtypes, like as mm-hmm. we've experienced in the GPE. Yep. The more subtle uh, and important differences you find among the population. Yep. What's remarkable is how well we understand the spatial layout of certain kinds of functions in the basal ganglia without knowing anything about the temporal layout of the message the neurons are sending to each other. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we can specify with real precision where the important places are for the movements of the hand. But uh, we don't know how activity in, the, in those places actually controls the movement in the hand. So, Good point. So, so I was going to ask you, Charlie, that based on your your what you told us about the 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 phase resetting um, trajectory. What 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 did you call it? Phase phase trajectory. Phase trajectory. Right. That um, and that this is the arguing for something other than a rate model for for the kind of uh, communication that in the basal ganglia circuits. Well, so what, surely you've thought about an alternative. You know, what, like, how is this circuit computing or how is it carrying signals? Well, you know, in a way, you can redefine rate model any way you want. So sometimes when talking to people who tell me, well, rate is fine, rate explains everything, well, some things happen fast. And neurons don't change their rate very fast. They go, oh yeah, I can see two spikes that come really close together and two spikes that are really far apart. And so those two spikes that are really close together, that was a high rate moment for the cell. And the two spikes that were really far apart, that was a low rate. So now you're talking about not what was originally meant by rate models. Mm -hmm. What was originally meant by rate models was just we can smooth over the fluctuations we can integrate over yeah. some period of time. Like and then we can say what, what the period of time is. And so the implicit idea behind a rate model is I know the time frame of, in which the brain is integrating information. So maybe I am studying the movement of a limb. And so I would say, well, I mean, I can't move my limb back and forth any faster than 10 hertz, so I shouldn't care about any time that's shorter than 100 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea is that if I can't move my limb any faster than 10 hertz, then therefore the neurons don't need to fire any faster than mm-hmm. 10 hertz, basically. <clears throat> if, if the neurons are firing faster than 10 hertz, then they could be carrying, could be have a way higher bandwidth than, than the movement. So if if I'm sure that this neuron's job is only movement, then I wouldn't ever care about any bandwidth was higher than that. You know, sometimes though you think about like a default system, right, upon which everything else is superimposed. <clears throat> so you could have high rates where movements are superimposed on high rates, or you can have movements that are superimposed on lower rates. So it's almost like a signal-to-noise ratio. If you're increasing by 10 hertz, but you're firing at 100 hertz, that's not a great signal-to-noise ratio. But if you're firing at 10 hertz, and you go to 20 hertz, that's a much better signal. Yeah, that's a reason for firing fast, even if you're integrating over a really slow time period. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, or operating at a certain level. Yeah, clearly, uh, there are some advantages. If you're you're firing really fast, you could speed up by, you know, 10%, and that might be 
a lot of 10 spikes per second, whereas if you're going slower, speeding up by 10% might not even be one spike per second. So that's, that's fine. That isn't what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about actual bandwidth of temporal signals that the neuron could be carrying. <laughs> so I would just offer this. You know, in neurons that we know are using a rate code, like, for example, somatosensory, non-adapting somatosensory receptor neurons, they fire rhythmically. They would fire rhythmically faster or slower. They can fire really fast, and so tiny little changes of the stimulus can be encoded in tiny little changes of rate, and the high speed of their firing makes them better at representing many different gradations of, of, uh, of sensory stimulus. But they don't fire regularly, ever. They fire rhythmically all the time. And that, and that the ryth- so in this case, rhythmic means the regular interspike intervals. Regular interspike intervals. Yes, which yeah. is different than the sort of rhythmicity we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You're talking about rhythmic bursting or something like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 But rhythmic interspike intervals is what a rate encoder yeah. ought to be using. Mm-hmm. And if we look in the basal ganglia anywhere, we never see rhythmic never. interspike intervals except if we cut the synaptic connections between the cells. And then they all become beautifully mm-hmm. rhythmic. Mm-hmm. And so the, there is something in there that is uh, embedded in that irregular firing. So, uh, I don't know, it's a, you, you could just say, oh, I just don't think that means anything. But, um, well, it's, but, it's, the, but it, it looks <clears throat> to me like there's a message in there and we're just ignoring it. I, I think it's very liberating to yeah. think about it. Because it, it, it just, it, it's evident that different behavioral states create different patterns of activity and within the same series of neurons. And something in there is resetting, reorganizing, other subtle inputs, things that change when you move from one state to another, the influence of one part of the brain on the circuit more than yeah. uh, at another time. And the thought that there can then be these subtle rechangings, restructuring of the rhythmic patterns by some kind of phase delays or reordering of the of the, of the system to create different bandwidths of uh, synchronized activity um, in the way that you've been looking at, uh, I think gives one a lot of options to think about how the system can be um, organized. It would certainly sort of enrich the neural coding that the neurons could do because one of the problems with the basal ganglia are there's so few output neurons compared to the number of inputs. So we do lots of different stuff and how, how does that work with so few output neurons? And maybe the only way it could work would be with a very sophisticated complex code that's, I don't know, assaying synchrony in some cells versus others and where precise timing is very important. And yet we take it out and people do better when they have problems. Well, I think, but I think that, again, I think the problem is that in the disease state, the, the output is really aberrant and interrupts movement. I mean, I think the work, um, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this, Rob, that really the basal ganglia come pretty late to movement and really what they're doing is, is giving a sort of affirmation that the, the movement that's already been initiated is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, I, you know, in some ways maybe that doesn't need to be such a complex code. I don't know. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think that 
it's great that we're actually thinking about this again because I think for many years we stopped really thinking hard about rake, uh, about coding in the basal ganglia. It just was, has been such a difficult problem. You know, it's kind of big. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, how there's really a lot does of pieces it? to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, patema is a pretty big structure in our brains. Oh, yeah. And, and yet, you know, if we're talking about it's doing just subtle things, kind of reminds us about a correct movement. I mean, I remember a patient, yet we did a pallidotomy on. He told me he couldn't dance after the pallidotomy. Huh. Before he could, he was rhythmic, he could mm -hmm. dance. He lost his rhythm, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that says necessarily, um, but how do you figure that out? I mean, how do you understand what the normal function is? I mean, you've got two of them. They're big. They have yeah. all kinds of components. They project to the thalamus, which has 50 different subnuclei, which goes to different portions of the cortex. If you remember, I think, wasn't Rodolfo Linus who had this theory that... Um, whatever circuit you affected through the thalamus, that was your deficit that you had, mm -hmm. right? That it, it was all dependent upon the projections where they went. And yet everything kind of talks to everything else yet. Yeah. So how does that how does that work? Who knows? <laughs> and, and the other thing is, are these oscillations that we see in PD, are they compensatory? Mm -hmm. That's a good question, isn't yeah. it? Um, and you, there's a lot, I, I think, to argue for that in some cases. I mean, actually some data from our rodent studies. Um, if, if you get your, um, if you don't overwhelm the system by such a big deficit that you're below the floor, mm -hmm. but if you've got some, you're not as poorly off as you could be, and then you look at the impact of the, of the changes that occur yeah. over time, you can almost yeah. imagine you're coming back through these compensatory uh, yeah. Processes. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, in the disease, you lose the primary teaching signal of, that, that goes to the basal ganglia. And that is, we think, incredibly important for, you know, for motor learning, mm -hmm. uh, performing appropriate sequences of actions. Um, and so that's, it's incredible that you, that the motor system can adapt to the loss of that. So with a pallidotomy, that, that system's not online anymore. And yet, it looks like you can move reasonably well, but mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that <clears throat> that more subtle deficits in in something like dancing yeah. can't be rescued. Does anybody ever test pallidotomy patients to see if they can learn new dynamics, yeah. like so, you know, balancing yeah. a cane oh, that, no, on that's their a fingertips? Good question. Or that kind yeah. of thing? So there's this really nice study um, by Ho Jose Obeso, the first author, but there's a long string of all of the people at UCL in London are on that paper. And it's studying one patient who has had a pallidotomy plus an STN lesion. So as part of this uh, Cuban, Cuban study. Yeah. study. And they, they looked at what, and it's all on one hemisphere. And so one hemisphere is intact, the other hemisphere has this double lesion. And so what can this guy do? And they did went through a wide range of different types of tests, many, many different types of motor tests. And... This guy's better at all of those on the on the lesion side <laughs> than on the non-lesion side, except for two things. And th you know, so this is cool, right? What are the two things that he's not good at? One is sequence learning, <laughs> learning an implicit sequence. So doing the SRT task, he's bad, at, really bad at that. Yeah. And the other thing is is um, adjusting the res the uh, response to um, 
consistent timing. So if you do mm-hmm. ready, set, go, right, most people can ready, set, go. If it's at a regular interval, you can hit that go right on the mm-hmm. right, <clears throat> right on the money. And he couldn't do that. That's a simple form of rhythm, right? That's yeah. Like what yeah. Is just yeah. yeah. And it's 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 you know it's a one-off. Like this is just one patient, but it's a fascinating study mm-hmm. just to look at all of the things that are preserved after this gigantic lesion. Yeah, and then you wonder where the lesions were and how big they were and did they get, what territories did they get? This is a good question. I think that should be looked at. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) The lesion is just on one side, but the dopamine depletion is not really just restricted to one side, probably. Right, that's right. So his unlesioned side might be more pathological. Yes, it was. It was worse on the un. His unlesioned, um, the, the hand contralateral to the non-lesioned hemisphere was worse than the, the hand contralateral to the lesioned hemisphere. Right. So, yeah. so one thing you said in your talk today was um, that, you know, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a figure that's used throughout the field that you only really see symptoms, you only have diagnosis of Parkinson's disease when you've lost 50 to 60% of your dopaminergic neurons. But there's, there's evidence, actually, that, you know, you've probably lost 90 to 95% of dopamine release in the striatum at that point, that the axon degenerates before the cell bodies. What do you, what do you think about it? And if that's yeah. true, if that's true, that it takes that much loss to, to then exhibit symptoms, then the, the adaptation or compensation that's in the system is pretty incredible. Yeah, I think, I think when you talk to patients, so what you find out is that they th- when they go back in time, well, yeah, you know, they really weren't swinging their arm. So probably five years before, I know this, the person that I take care of was a Super good difficult friend to of do mine. that back ex- extrapolation. Though. It is. I mean, it's hindsight's a great thing, right? Yeah. But, but they, you know, they'll talk about their handwriting getting smaller. Um, they'll talk about some things they couldn't do. They didn't think much about it. Family members. Somebody else sees that. it, yeah, and tells them because it's so subtle and slow hmm. that they don't pick up on it. Uh, but yet other people will say, well, you know, I kind of noticed that before. You really weren't swinging that right arm as much. And so I think you, I think if you tested them, you know, Mark, what you're saying, what if you did some very interesting sequence learning paradigms mm-hmm. and took these people early on, if you knew they were early on, yeah. and could test them? I bet they'd have deficits, mm-hmm. right? Subtle things. We don't see until all of a sudden a tremor pops up or, you know, they have trouble rolling over in bed at night and, or other things that create problems for them functionally. And then they come in and see us. But up until that point, you may not see them. So I think they probably have stuff a lot earlier. But I also agree with you that there's probably a lot of compensation. And I know that um, Scott Grafton did some PET studies back in Amherst years ago. And when he looked at the PET studies in Parkinson's patients during a test, I think you must have done this with them, didn't you, Rob? When he saw the... You saw a lot like occipital lobe and other other parts of the brain were involved quite a bit. Then the idea was, is this compensation or is it just a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Defocusing. I think that was the debate you guys had because yeah, you yeah. That paper, right. You? So so yeah. the, the consistent pattern that we saw with with it, these were PET studies, yeah. and yeah. the consistent pattern that we saw was was that the areas that are normally activated in a task are hypoactive, underactive. Um, in a Parkinson's patient. And other areas that aren't normally activated become activated. Right. So, so there's an expansion of act- activity into 
other areas. And, and um, it's really difficult to dissociate or to, to tease apart the two possible explanations. Yeah. One could be compensation, and the other is that this really is part of the, part of the problem. Yeah. Is that it's the the best way to do this task is to suppress activity in the unwanted areas and only activate the the right network. Um, and how do you how do you design a study to test those two possible yeah. explanations? Yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was an interesting study when you guys did it. And, uh, well, and, and then Scott did the um, did the um, um, analysis. At, Post, I think it was was post palatotomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, post palatotomy, and there was a relative normalization, right? So yeah, so that the adventitious activity was reduced mm. after the palatotomy. It was interesting because he had done <clears throat> that study, I think, in California before he came to Emory, right? One of those studies, or did he do one after he got no, back? No, that's just old Emory. data that he finally got around to. Okay, the old. But the interesting part about that PET study was when they did the study. Yes, that things did normalize in PET, but the patient didn't get better. When they made those lesions, they were very big, and they actually extended up dorsally, probably into GPE. Because when I read the paper, and in fact, it was one of the people that come to watch us do palatotomies early on, and said, I think it's too complicated, I don't think we should do it, went back and did it anyway, and published that series of people, and oh. those PET studies did look better. And they said, this is what happens when, when people, this is what a palatotomy does, how it works, right? And yet the patient didn't get better, so it can't be how a palatotomy works, because they didn't get better. So that was an odd, that was an odd paper to read at that time. Mm -hmm. There were, since then, there were other papers that have come out and mm -hmm. talked about it as well. But it, it just tells you how complicated the field is, frankly. You can actually make a PET study look better. And look at what they did in fetal tissue transplants. It was the same story. PET studies look better, the patients weren't any better. <laughs> so it, it kind of follows with the, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know what that tells us. It tells us how hard it is. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I've been meaning to ask you guys what you think about the parafasicular nucleus of the thalamus, which would appear by many reports to die in Parkinson's yep. disease, where neurons die there, mm -hmm. and whether that can be some sort of compensatory. First, why would they die? They, they, they have no connection to dopamine particularly. Well, you might argue they could have input from the substantia nigropars reticulata. They, they're supposed to have some. Why that so that you would, might at least expect they would show some patterned activity. Um, in the rats, they don't, surprisingly. Um, but I think it's a very good question why they die. Um, and there seems some evidence to suggest, again, in animal models, that that can be uh, a positive thing with respect to striatal function. But, you know, locus ruleus is also effective. Dorsomononucleus of the vagus is affected. Yeah. I yeah. They don't have dopamine. So are all of those affected by MPTP? Because the MPTP well, I don't know actually about, does yeah. go after the, the perfasicular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that with Brock's, you know, yeah, I don't think so. you see these brain stimulants. Yeah, I thought I mean, those others were not affected no. by MPTP. I, I mean, the, the, the best um, model that I've seen recently is a recent paper by Ted Dawson and Neuron where they used, where they injected 
um, fibrilla alpha synuclein into, into mice, into the duodenum and the pylorus, and they produced something that looked like a Brach progression of PD, uh, and it affected all the, the, the vagus, other brainstem, cholinergic neurons, mm -hmm. basal forebrain, mm -hmm. um, everything. And, and produce very nice progressive degeneration of dopamine neurons. So that made me really think hard about the, the pathogenesis in the disease. Yeah. Infectious. So it could be, yeah, it could yeah. be the connectivity and sort of a... a it is a connectivity of, map, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Misfolding yeah. disorder. But interestingly, right. they, they knocked out endogenous alpha-synuclein in that mouse, did the same injection and no pathology. So, so the... The exogenous alpha-synuclein was the thing that caused the endogenous alpha-synuclein to then seed and propagate through the through the nervous system. So it was. Now I'm frightened because we need a whole <laughs> other podcast. It does remind me of the paper that was done at Rush with Jeff Cordor. He yeah, about this with the fetal tissue transplant. Because they always um, were really pushed this idea that it was like an infection. Yeah, and um, those cells that they transplanted yeah. then developed Lewy bugs. Yeah. So there was something about being in that environment that was toxic to those cells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's very interesting. Okay, well, thank you very much. That uh, It's been great. And but but uh, we haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not going to be able to do it all. On this <laughs> so thank you, everybody, Rob and Judy and Jerry and Mark. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank, thank you, Charlie. You so much, Charlie. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs>